0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Ed3 Podcast. So excited to welcome you to the first ever Ed3 Gatherings. The gatherings are where we bring live events to you discussing the future of learning. In this first gathering, we bring you the Ed3.0 discussion from March 23rd, 2023. In this discussion, we're exploring the ethical and practical implications of using ChatGPT and AI tools in schools. Our guest speakers bring perspectives everywhere from New York City Public Schools to the Ed Safe AI Alliance. And it's a great discussion on how we can think about the future of learning and how we can mindfully use these tools to improve learning, but also to give access to everyone. So I'm excited to have you jump in and we'll bring future gatherings to you. Welcome to Ed3 Gatherings.
1: So welcome everyone. As always, for three years plus now in this weekly call, everyone is always welcome. And, you know, this tends to be more of a conversation than a presentation. So for today, you know, my prompt is to get the conversation going. SalCon is integrating GPT-4 into a new service that can provide personalized tutoring for free. Ezra, Ezra Klein explains how this changes everything. In his interview with Kelsey Piper this week, she describes it as the likely arrival of aliens we can't really communicate with or understand due to arrive and affect almost everything in the next few years. So hopefully more for good than bad, but if we can possibly create regulations that keep pace with the technology to avoid the shortfalls that we've all seen in social media and many of the other emerging technologies. Tara, so welcome, you wanna start? What your thoughts are, sure how you like to hear this group of folks?
2: Yeah, thanks for, thanks for having me. I am the director of digital learning for New York City Schools and this is a definitely a hot topic on our minds and in our work right now for sure and I will just share that it's something that we want to embrace with fidelity and and we really think it has the power to transform teaching and learning and also gives gives us an opportunity to effectively demonstrate how we teach digital tools in the classroom to educators and in the classroom for good as well as to the community in NYC so we're talking a lot about how to also educate families on it demystify the use of emerging technologies like chat gpt and really really get to the heart of what they can do versus what they can't and and so we are we are hopefully looking to embrace these technologies and and do it with with an ethical approach and integrity. I don't know if that answered your question, G. I'm I'm running from another another meeting, so I'm happy, happy to talk more about it. i well, maybe um, just
0: just give
1: one more kind of, you know, from the front lines. You know, there you are, you know, in the chancellor's office and they're okay. saying, you know, we're banning chat GPT from the network because, you know, fraud, you know, frauds, cheating, et cetera. And then people are saying, well, OK, We can't just ban it because that's not really going to work. So where the hell do we go next, right?
2: Right. Well, I think, you know, I don't know how unified, unified, I don't know, you know, how, how many people partook in like the initial decision to not have it open. I think it was just the safest thing to do for the size of, of the city and, you know, the unknowns around the technology. But now it's, it's really like. What's the risk of not embracing technology for our students who we want to be global citizens, who we want to participate on a global scale and also if they're not if we are not equitably teaching these technologies to all New York City students, it also drives inequity for for students at home who might be accessing it regardless of whether it's available on their on their school devices and um, through the filter at their schools so I think we're just really trying to be as transparent as possible around the benefits of AI, what AI and machine learning are, and then transition into how is chat GPT different and why is, why is all of like, like AI is not new, right? It's in all of our lives. It's going to continue to to be, but how is chat GPT different and how can we leverage it to really transform teaching and learning?
1: You said the word transparency. And I want to start, you know, pulling more people into this conversation. But you know, my my son would say, and he's you know he works in this space. That's the whole problem. It's there is it is fundamentally impossible to have transparency with the current large large language models. They are inherently black boxes that will not communicate to us how they make their predicted you know out, outputs to our inputs. So this. Focusing on transparency, insisting, regulating, saying no one no AI could work in New York City unless it is transparent, unless it has what people call interpretability, right? It has to say why it did the thing that it did. It has to say why it gave if it's going to do grading. It has to say why it gave an A and why it gave a B. It has to be able to explain that. If it can't, if it just says A, B, B minus C plus, right? Then you don't really know what why, right? And what other goals might it have? What biases might have. So that to me is the center of this conversation, but I want to, Lori, do you want to go next? Of help? Yeah. Oh, you're muted there, Lori.
3: I,
4: I so appreciate Tara being here because what a position to be in at this moment in time in the New York city school district. And I I applaud you for being in that space because I, I agree. I think right now I love the way the the article that you circulated, used the word fire to describe AI. I think that's (laughs) where we're at, where we have something that is both kind of infinitely powerful, but also infinitely dangerous. And on the bias equation, doesn't start out from a neutral position. So anybody who wants to enter in this conversation about ethics, Really the place to start is with stochastic parrots. It was four researchers seminal work put out way before the rest of us really knew what AI was. In fact, these models were never even called artificial intelligence when they were first developed. That's a colloquial word, but they're really predictive language models. And I think in terms of being able to teach our students and frankly, you know, all of us how to use them, ethically and effectively, it's really understanding what the technology is. So yes, there is no transparency into open AI's model, but we do know a lot about how the composition of large language models work, right? And it basically is like, you predict the next word after the one that came before it, then you can predict two words, then you can predict three words, then you can predict an infinite number of words. And that is what's happening. It's not thinking. It's not sentient. Those are all things that are phenomenological, right? That's what we see. And frankly, that's actually even what the Microsoft researchers see, right? They can only look at the outputs. But I think we, we do know, and I think it's important to kind of cabin what this is, not to say that it doesn't have a huge potential. And I, I use this every day in my work, but I use it kind of understanding the risks every time I'm opening it up and knowing what tool I'm using.
1: And just, I just want to clarify in case I didn't speak clearly. I'm not saying that open AI as an organization is not being transparent. I'm saying that the very essence of a large language model
5: yeah. cannot I, reveal- Yeah, saying,
4: I'm saying open AI, is not transparent. <laughs> well, that, that, we'll that. That, I will add that onto your.
1: Do you want to join in this? And I don't know whether, I know you have some information that you want to share also. So I'm happy to, you know, you know, again, think less presentation and more kind of communication of what should what should we all know about your effort to lead some?
6: Yeah, so I think to jump straight in, I 100% agree OpenAI is not being transparent. I'll join with you on that one. And I would disagree slightly in terms of the fact that LLMs are by definition black boxes. They do not have to be. So I think one of the things that we are very strongly arguing for in terms of the transparency aspect is the fact that we must demand that there is, for example, a minimum set that needs to be made available of the, the training data so that we can understand that that has been equitable and fair, that we understand that there aren't limitations that are being inherently put into some of these systems and things like that. So I think there is actually a way that we can demand transparency. But looking at the precedent that's currently being set and the arguments that are going behind that, we're in a level of dangerous territory. (laughs) So I definitely want to look at that. And you asked me at the start about the, some of the different frameworks, and I think frameworks are great and they have their place, they're necessary. But what we're seeing right now is we need to look further and we need to look further pretty fast. And I do have some slides. I, did, I will throw them up just so yep. I can chat through some of them. To the point that was made just before, I think, math has never been so sexy, right? Like, I was at, a, I was at South by Southwest and someone's like, I got ChatGPT to reply in the tone of Matthew McConaughey. I'm like, cool. And they're like, and it's the same conversation around the plagiarism piece as well. It's math, it's context, it's making connections, nothing more. And so everything else that's sort of being put onto this, there is no thing behind this that is making it go like think or or go beyond that. It is only as good as where we are right now. And the other thing we have to be very clear of, especially when we're looking at education and looking sort of to the school districts and the way that things are being communicated at the moment, we've never been more a part of a product than we are right now. The only way these systems get better is by learning from us. So we are the product (laughs) moving forward and that has massive consequences also and not least in terms of sort of data privacy and data protection. Yeah, the landscape's big. So everyone's talking about ChatGPT. It's based on, well, we had GPT-3, now we have GPT-4 that has decided to go black box, which is fantastic. And I think we we definitely need to argue around that in terms of how these things are trained. I think a lot of us understand that, but in case you don't, we have a really nice graphic there about what happens. It is just un, sort of underscoring the fact that these systems are just really, really good at connecting the dots between different words, between different contexts, between different settings, and at times being able to other contexts and other settings and get corrected in their use of those, which then become sort of verified uses that they can then produce as an answer. Why is policy so important? As we started looking into some of the issues around this, we saw sort of four really key areas that were going to be undermining the equality and the equity within the education system. These would be systems that are specifically designed to limit access. And so I had a really great tweet there, but it's it's any group that has enough cash and enough funding that specifically wants certain information unlearned. And this is a possibility if we don't have to provide any transparency in terms of what has been training these models, what they've been learning on, what they've been given to learn from what the connections that they've been told are true or false. We have a distinct possibility that in certain governments, in certain environments, we will have systems that are specifically told to forget certain things like wars, like any kind of people that had that had injustices done to them. And I think this is a really key issue that we need to look at. There's also an issue in terms of what's being trained and the nuances of thought and the nuances of speech and how they're being then justified within the education context. A lot of the language models at the moment are obviously needing to be trained on extremely large data sets. And the way that they do that is looking at sort of what the key large groups are. English, we've got Chinese, we've got sort of the, the key leading groups with which provide enough data for them to train on. And the really small languages or the hundreds of indigenous languages that are out there, there's not going to be the data necessary. There won't be the types of ways that they can express themselves and We also run the risk then of really limiting certain cultural groups in the way that they can express themselves within some of these educational systems or the recognition of the way that they express themselves are understood. And then there's also systemi apparently designed for specific learners and in that case as well it's going to the, the point that we need to have the data sets that are available to train these systems so that they're not just specifically going to sort of the high achievers or any kind of limitation on learning for specific learners and then there's systems that can be influenced. And so at the moment, there's a very real possibility. It's also one of the reasons why Bing has limited the number of prompts that you're allowed to give their systems, among other things. But there is the possibility of limiting, uh, sorry, of influencing what these systems can do.
1: So what we've been doing is looking to prevent, okay, so to, okay. yeah. I just want to, In if you were to, t- you know, focus your, what, like, okay, you've got Tara here. She is yeah. literally leads the largest school district in America on this topic. So she and the people around her are going to make decisions about a million kids a year and, and, and 100,000 teachers. So what do you offer her as a set of specific recommendations about something that an enterprise very influential, very large can do. So now what should she be doing that she's not doing?
6: Yeah, so (laughs) I'm so sorry, because I don't wanna call you out as well. There's a whole, well, it's not only what you should be doing, right? It's a whole thing of things you need to understand as well. And so I think there's different areas that we need to be focusing on. We've got the large language models like GPT, but then you've got all the applications that are built on them like ChatGPT, right? And we're dealing with all of the applications at that level. So there's different things that you can approach depending on what area you're in. There's certain things we can do with the black boxes and there's certain other things we can do with applications and how we deal with them and regulate them. But more to the point, and I will try and get out of that for a sec. What one thing that we've been looking at very strongly, I mean, actually I will just quickly skip to this. We've been looking at a lot of different policy in terms of all the frameworks. So there's a ton of frameworks. They all do different things. Great. But when we're looking at policy development, this is sort of where we're at. If we can make recommendations about what to do, we're currently in the situation where we're defining things, right? So we can define certain things that we can provide certain recommendations, but until we're at a stage where they can be enforced, we're a long way out. And if we look at history, it can take a long time to get there and we don't have that time. And so I think one of the big things we need to do is work really fast on these iteration processes and align them very strongly with existing practices so that we have the possibility to sort of expedite these these situations we've just gone through the process of sort of defining our top 10 things that we would suggest we need to demand of both like from from both sides really so making the demand on the industry but then also looking into the policy section to understand sort of how we're creating these but that's looking at that transparency aspect especially around things how things are trained Transparency regarding the data usage, so how tools are utilizing these or aim to use things within their system, the informed consent piece, and I think that's something that a lot of the educators we're talking to are getting really active about, and this is where I think roles like districts and like schools have an important part to play here in helping to increase that transparency and the understanding of what is actually going on, what it means to be entering something into one of these systems. The fact that the data that you're entering no longer belongs to you, really, if you're reading the fine print, the fact that, you know, anything you're submitting into there is actually becoming part of a system that may or may, you may not want to have remember you in that degree. The idea around sort of privacy... And the fact that there needs to be a degree of influence over how and why personally identifiable data is being used, and we need to demand that that is made transparent. The safety and security, so we need to be we need to be reassured that these systems are reliable, that they can be maintained, they can be resilient to all of the vulnerabilities, they can affect some of the integrity of that personal data. The bias and limitations part is absolutely. So important within the education setting. And that's ensuring that we have processes that can help identify and assess and mitigate that bias. That we can also then look and see that we're focusing on topics like inclusiveness by design, non discriminatory practices with the development of it. There's the accountability aspect as well. And in terms of that, this is something that often gets missed. So, who do we even approach for some of these questions? The human in the loop part is the part that I think is so specifically important within education. And this is providing those human feedback loops within AI, but really demanding that a human has the interaction capability before decisions are made. So before a student's put out of a certain group and into a remedial group, ensuring that there is a human in that loop to either assess that decision, to either make a different decision, to streamline someone into a different, but ensuring that there are humans in the decision-making processes that are part of the outcomes of any AI that's going into education and really demanding that. A lot of the products are doing that, which is fantastic, but it's something that because we are in sort of the nascent phases of AI in education, it may be further in other fields. It is not so far in education yet. I think we're in a really good position to make these demands and be very clear about what we are expecting and wanting. And then the last thing we have is sort of the verifiability. So, what happens sort of within those systems and how they get through, and then the stakeholder support. And that's sort of to the point that you were making. How do we help the the educators, the parents, the communities around the learners to really be empowered in their use of these tools, to have the deeper understanding that's necessary, but then from the industry side to make a proper commitment to be user-centered, to be collaborative, to be consultative in sort of the identification of all of these issues. And I might leave it there because they do have to jump early anyway. And that gives so, us a couple yeah, of so time too.
1: Yeah, so Beth, I was going to just then you know, get your reaction from Tower. Does that seem like the right categories of things that a large education enterprise like New York City should be considering?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think we're considering all of that. <laughs> you know, it, it, and we're, we definitely have input from many stakeholders in the in the game. And I think, you know, any resources anyone wants to share with me too. I might have to drop a little early. Feel free. You know, I'm open to to sharing back everything that's available with New York City. I think it's important to to have a community of practice like you all discussing, discussing and working on this so that so that the right information is also shared back to large school districts like New York City. You know, everyone wants to be part of New York City in in a way, shape or form, but having like the authentic information from people who have have been doing this work for a long time is really one of my passions and the role I'm in is making sure that happens. So. Awesome.
1: So let me bring my brother Ted into this conversation because he shared some slides that he made as he goes down his journey with AI and some of the some of the distinctions that you were making, you know, in slide 17, I thought were particularly good. And I don't know if you want to just kind of share kind of anything else in the slides or, you know, but when we talk about AI, what are we really talking about? Right. Can you unpack it a little bit for us about what are the kind of the primary types of AI that we're interacting? or processes
7: muted there. Backing up very briefly and then accelerating and apologies. So I started programming in sixth grade in 1975. And so I've been following AI continuously, you know, since then. And it's always been the thing that was promised and never delivered. And now it is, you know, very, very, very significant. And we're all seeing that. So for the past year, I sort of invested most of my time in understanding AI in a sort of hands-on way. Programming, touching, learning. And it is a language and a set of distinctions that is complicated, you know, at the scale of computer science. And I think that in the same way that we've had digital knowledge and digital, digital citizenship and et cetera, there's a whole bunch of distinctions that are important. So some of this may be a little bit beginner to some of you. Hopefully this is a little bit sort of clarifying, but this is, I, you know, a slide on AI techniques 1.0. So in particular, the the initial set of AI techniques that we're sub-talking here is supervised learning. And that's when you have a known data and a known output, and you can just train the AI to recognize given this known data, it's this output. Given this known data, it's this output. And in particular, they, that often divided into a prediction, like usually it's called regression, and it's predicting a value. What is the price that a home would sell? You know, sell at what's the probability that this person won't pay off their debt? You know, so there's various different. It's a it's a predictive number, and a, a parallel class of problems or classification, which is usually a one event, mutually exclusive classes. Will this patient have a stroke? Is this transaction, you know, fake, you know, et cetera. And in parallel to that, there's clustering, which is like, how do you take all of this data and say, well, are there really actually K different groups that are sort of similar, you know, for this? Reinforcement learning is a whole nother topic on AI where you give it a goal and it just continuously strives to accomplish this thing. And one of the things that's kind of amazing is like the hot topic, and mostly what we're talking about is large language models. And large language models are really not doing any classification, they're not doing any clustering, they're not doing any reinforcement learning. So in some ways, I'm part of this sort of, hey, everybody get aware, because we're only seeing 1.0 right now. 1.0, it's gonna be way different, way bigger, way fast. And so everybody, all hands on deck. You need to understand these distinctions. And so this was my, you yeah. know, not the sky is falling, but you know, be aware. So reinforcement learning, anomaly. So hold on, I just want,
1: to, just want to underline one thing because in your in your slides, one of the things that you do is there's a great movie about AlphaGo. And if anyone hasn't seen the movie about AlphaGo, it's a really Im- incredible movie. It's when AI beat human expertise in the game of Go, and that was reinforcement learning, right? That was basically play a gazillion games until it develops strategies that were superior to human experts.
8: My understanding yeah.
1: of large language modeling is sort of the opposite, which is you run the model once, basically you then tune it after, and then it doesn't, I don't think that someone correct me, Chat GPT, GPT-4 GPT is not learning anything more particularly in its model. Yeah, that's
7: that's mostly true. I mean, actually, probably what's true is it's being trained for engagement and it's going, it just wants to be used by people. And so when somebody hangs up on it, it's like, oh, I guess I wish I I should have complimented their hair, you know, or something like that. Nice hair. Nice hair. You know, like, so like babies or cute puppies, you know, the thing that people need to understand is that AI is an attention, attention economy play like advertising, like the fact that Facebook is free, like the fact that Twitter is free. And that, um, you know, when we are participating in even what we think of as passively, we're not just passively participating by the fact of engagement, you are altering it. And there's just an inherent, you know, not you individually, but us collectively, you know, are doing that. So, There's a whole bunch of related AI, you know, technique, which I would call, you know, 1.0. If you, you know, Greg's selecting certain slides. My slide set is, you know, 60 slides. People should just skim it and look at things randomly. And, you know, hopefully something in there is useful.
1: So let me, let me, let me, let me pause you to just like, so when I looked at this slide, what jumped out to me is I was thinking, okay, so what does that mean it'll do well in education? Right, so prediction, okay. That's like who's going to drop out? Who's going to who's likely going to have a problem? Who's likely going to do really well? Right? That's that's a prediction, right? Classification. Well, okay, I'm going to do like this essay scores at proficient at level four. You know, this one at three, this one at two. Right? Classification, clustering. Okay, these students might have dyslexia based on what I'm seeing.
4: So can I can I jump in and Please. talk a little bit because I think you know what I'm trying to learn myself and teach right because that's what we're all doing it's like we're learning and teaching at the same time is really how to work with the machine to get a better outcome than either one of us and I when I say us I mean me and it not me and them to get a better outcome for all of us right and I'm gonna just give an example of something that happened to me within the past 24 hours so I started a newsletter that i posted on linkedin and i basically did the show my work which i think is like what i learned from math <clears throat> is that the answer is not everything right part of it is how you arrive at the answer and so i wanted to show people reading what i wrote myself alone and what i wrote with chat gpt right so i did that but i did not show where i edited chat gpt which I did. So like in specific paragraphs, I went in and I changed things. I was using an example from Bell Hooks. And Bell Hooks is a cultural anthropologist. The book that I read of hers is on writing. And that was the example I was using. I have the book from Bell Hooks literally sitting in front of me. And the author's name is not capitalized. But when I saw that ChatGPT returned it back to me uncapitalized, my own human bias fixed it. At which point, one of my professor friends pointed out to me that Bell Hooks actually intentionally writes her name without capitalization for an intended purpose, right? So that they put themselves in a in a more subjective instead of objective position. ChatGP was right. I was wrong. Right? We are we are both biased. And when the person who spoke earlier talked about aliens, right? It was that I actually see this as ghosts, not aliens, right? We're working with what's been in our past, right? Kind of recovering from our past. We're not talking about something coming from the future or from another world. Like, this is just us. We're just seeing us. So, I, you know, I think it's really about kind of a back and forth, right? And I talk about using six thinking hats, which is like an Edward de Bono term. If you haven't read the book, it's just I think a phenomenal way of thinking about a diversity of thought, both like in the groups that you put together to think through problems. And also I kind of use that in my own head to argue with myself. But if you just think of this tool as one of those voices, right? Unreliable, but sometimes like has, has some wisdom, right? Sometimes has some facts, but you kind of have to, to balance it out with all of the other tools you have in your toolkit.
1: I was thinking it like also like, I mean, Scott, I just, I forget, I was just trying to chase down one of your recent posts where you're like, okay, we all need to be on a six day workout, right? Where we work on our chat prompt skills. Cause like we all, we all should, particularly us, a lot of the folks on this call, like we should be, we, but it's changing so fast. How do we even keep pace with it? How do we practice this? You know, what's a way that, you know, you know, Ted has a AI workout buddy, you know, that he works with right? And, you know, we might all need a kind of an AI workout buddy in order to be able to keep up with the pace of change. Scott, do you want to share anything your, of what you've been doing or what you're, how you've been approaching it?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, build in public is the phrase a lot of people use in the startup world. I really like learn in public, which is really similar to what Laurie just talked about. So one thing I'm just doing as an experiment is like, could we build a group course on LinkedIn as a practice? So essentially going through prompt engineering, which is how do you ask questions? And in this case, we're doing it with image generation. So looking at Mid Journey. And I think that thing that I'm trying to show is like, in less than five minutes, you can create something. And with an additional five minutes a day for three, four days, you can really become a fine tuner, right? Like you can not just take what it gives you, but start to add in like the artistic elements. And, and I think people just have to see how easy it is to then be able to start experimenting. And I think that's, what's great about students is that they're maybe less afraid to start experimenting than we are. And, you know, I think school definitely is, tends to work a lot of that out of them. So I love the idea of AI encouraging people to learn in public and share kind of like Laurie said, because I think that's where the beauty of Midjourney, another tool I just saw yesterday, BloomBot, which is like a discord bot for English and reading text is that it's a social experience. And that's one of my fears with AI is that people end up in their own language model, kind of like we heard earlier and. You know, I think that could be um, detrimental to learning, but I think when you open it up or you get feedback from other humans and other people's models, like then you have a little bit more comprehensive view and less likely to go down some of the more dangerous routes. I think people might, might
9: end up. I started of with Laurie's note about showing your work in math. You know, I was a math major and the answer isn't the answer. How do you get to the answer and your logic and the beauty of the logic? is what math is truly and the beauty of the proof is more important than, than the fact that and I think we as humans we're lazy right we will offload to a machine anything we can offload to a machine and at the detriment of the development of our own capacity and I think that is the real deep risk with large language models and AI generally and I'll separate large language models from AI as as related concepts if we let ChatGPT write our first drafts. We are no longer in the process of ideating the structure of our thoughts. We are offloading that to a machine, and then using our reaction to that to frame how we communicate. That is very dangerous because we are no longer the inceptor of our thoughts. We are only the reactor to the thoughts the machine puts together through processing and random chance. So, you know, I, I think we need to be very careful about damaging our own capacity as humans. Like how many phone numbers do, can you recall right now and type into your phone to, to connect to somebody you love or know? Not a lot, because we've offloaded all of that to the machines that we've become dependent with. So, you know, I think we need to be very, very careful about giving away our own humanness and our own intellect to the ghost That is in the machine. I'll also say that large language models don't care about the truth. They only care about convincing you that they're, they're human because they are replicating the patterns of our language, not the truth or the insights that live within. That's why I think connecting it to things like Wolfram Alpha and other kinds of logic models. So the sub process does the sanity check. I just said ABC. Right. Let me now upload that to Wolfram Alpha let's see if Rule is, is in fact a fact yep. and do a little bit of quality checking in the process the machine will certainly get better and become more human-like and become more reliable in terms of the facts being facts yep. all the while we'll be diminishing our capacity as humans and i think that is the big risk
4: let, let me just add in a little architecture analogy since that's my origin story you know if we do go back to talking about this as fire re- the laws that we have around fire came from things burning down right like we typically don't regulate until we've already had a catastrophe and you know i think this is like the line that we're we're trying to learn from history and not repeat our mistakes and so you know at the same time that i i kind of believe in holding two things in conflict until they find resolution and kind of suspending the resolution for a while while all of this is happening so I think we can simultaneously work on having a kind of playground and when I say playground I mean a place where we can experiment and really learn what's happening and try things out and find what works and what doesn't and at the same time a really heavy like lobbying of right of regulators to do something Right. I think it's absolutely important that we have re- re- regulation before we do have catastrophe. Because, I mean, if you just look at what's happening right now with it, we've put the power of deep fakes in everyone's hands. OK. Right. A week ago. Right. <laughs> OK. So there's like there's nothing now you can no longer look at a photograph and believe that something actually real happened. And that's you know, that's been evolving. But it's now like uh, your your neighbor can do this.
1: So Scott and Greedy are going to help us kind of as we're heading towards the towards the finish line. Like so, I mean, I just want to keep on like underlining this thing of, and we're not actually doing any of that. Congress is not acting, enterprises are not reacting. You know, the according in the and the Klein piece says, you know, most AI scientists will say there's a one in ten chance of catastrophe, one in ten chance of catastrophe, and we don't even have really a government agency in charge of this. We have fewer people working on this than work at the local McDonald's. You know, it's, you know, it's not, I mean, it's it's like uranium, but like a million times, you know, and we're, we don't we have any news catching We up.
4: actually do, we do have a government agency and actually the person just spoke at the NVIDIA conference two days ago. And it's, if you wanna go back and look at it, I can circulate that after the fact. The problem is regulators can only regulate on what's law, right? So right now there's no law for them to regulate on. They have a process of auditing and they audit companies all the time, asking for transparency into their data and looking specifically at issues of bias and harm. But we don't have a law right now that relates to these models.
3: I appreciate like the, you know, idea of regulation and the idea of like making sure that, you know, all of these things are being used with morality and ethics ethically but i think there's like a big missing strand here of all of the things that we've talked about like we're all talking about the tools that exist we're talking about the technology we're talking about how to use these tools thoughts during these challenges which are really amazing laurie's teaching about ai that's great right but the thing that we're actually missing here is like the fundamental principles about how and why ai exists and how it will continue to evolve And I think we experienced this during Web3 also. So we talked so much about Bitcoin, about blockchain, about all that. And we talked about using those technologies, but we never talked about, you know, why these technologies are so important to the sort of like evolution of the world and how new technologies are going to continue emerging in addition to these that are going to continue evolving those concepts. And I think that like we've sort of like sort of talked about them, but we don't like teach these things to students and to educators, right? So how do we teach students and educators about the fundamentals about why AI exists, how it exists, how it's going to evolve so that when the new chat GPT comes along or when a new technology comes along, which it will, you know, there are going to be new apps that come up. You know, there's going to be something better than the journey. There's going to be something better that exists. How do students then react to that and, and adapt to that really quickly rather than, as you said, Greg, before, trying to keep up with just how fast this particular technology evolves.
0: Scott? I I just think I'm an optimist of that. I do think this can actually make us more human. So I think that's the the take I see is like, you think about the classroom and a teacher, how much time is spent creating the lesson plans, you know, doing these administrative tasks and like, if we can get straight into the discussion points or we can have people getting details that then make, I, as a teacher can Easily find what things they're into, you know. Like, I just think there's so much potential where the teachers can spend more time on the interpersonal rather than on the didactic. And that takes training for the teachers. But I think that could be a, a real unlock. And you think about all the things that are thrown on teachers that aren't teaching now. And could some of those be offloaded, right? Like, is some of the issues talking about home issues, social emotional learning, like, are there pieces where we have, you know, tutors helping people are behind so the teachers can focus on discussion? I mean, I just think there's. There's a huge upside. So I know I just want to throw that, that piece in because I'm always enough.
3: Yeah. Okay. And I'm with you, Scott, there. And that's one of the reasons why we can't expect all of the technology that is continuing to evolve to be at, regulated, right? Like how much are people going to regulate? And if you regulate, then are you also inhibiting innovation and, and the type of thing Scott's talking about? Well, and I don't think you have to wait for
4: regulation to happen to use it and to start teaching, right? I think that's my, my point is like, let's do both at the same time. And I actually think, Reiti, through our experience with the students that we taught in the boot camp, you know, particularly high school students are already really savvy at kind of understanding how to work with technology, right? They have been students of the internet forever. So they already know that they need to look for multiple sources. They already know they can't trust information. I was really surprised and actually they picked up on hallucinations of the bot before I did and they kind of called it, right? So I think I would say for high school students and up, I actually don't have any worries about just presenting them the world as it is. And that, then let's give them the tools to process that. For students younger than that, I'm not sure. That's not my expertise. And I really would look to other people to to weigh in on, like, how much protection is needed. Dale, do you want
1: to jump in?
10: Yeah, just just briefly, I, I, both because of the comments in the chat and on, on the screen here. You know, I think one of the things from across the entire ecosystem that, you know, government regulation isn't the answer, but These tools are out there and can provide positives, but there is no trust because of all of the things we're talking about. Right. And that's one of the reasons we've, the Edsafe AI Alliance is about establishing some benchmarks that people could point to, to understand these tools better, but it has to be from people across the entire ecosystem. We were on with, you know, folks like UNESCO and the broadband commission, the data for learning working group, which is trying to advise on policy but there's so much of it that it's really hard. We need an AI tool to help us with that. But I think that this kind of conversation is exactly the conversations we need to be having to say, we wanna advocate for understanding these tools to create trust so that we have efficacy in them and that I as a parent or I as a teacher can know what I'm using to some degree. I am never gonna know the algorithm or need to know the algorithm, but I need to know what it is doing and what it is not doing. And that's where we need to be able to get to because Innovation and technology should outpace policy, but the policy regulators will come in and slash it or, or stop it in any way because they are uninformed and think they're doing really good things, right? And the TARs of the world are trying to do just that. They're trying to do really good things and protect and deliver equitable education, which these tools can enable, but they can't do it unless there's trust and understanding of the marketplace and how I build those tools, how I can sell those tools and what they're doing with the data For lifelong letters, not just in the K through 12 space or, or, and I'll stop there. I actually have to jump in a minute or so myself, but our links in the chat for the EdSafe AI Alliance, we'd love to have people involved. Well, Salcon, you know, it is, I started the whole thing off with talking about Salcon, you can go to the top of the thing.
1: The power of having a free personalized tutor for every kid on the planet, right? Someone, you know, who can be by their side and help them help with motivation with just the right behavioral motiva- motivation.
4: Yeah. I, I mean, I think this is this is game changing and I, I haven't tried it out yet. So I want to, I'm speaking with a bit of ignorance, but you know, the idea that you can scale learning and that you can personalize learning. I mean, I think that's where this is going, right? And, and really it's just impossible. I know people who are doing this in the classroom and to teach the variety of learning styles, learning abilities, prior experience, right? I I can't even imagine that I I lost at least three students in our last class because I could not, I I couldn't do it. So I think this is a really amazing opportunity. And i that's what I'm excited about, personally, is like the ability to give us the chance to improve how we teach.
3: Yeah. And I think it's also about changing the teaching model entirely, right? It's not about teaching, but it's about curating and guiding. And having students have decentralized learning pathways that they can sort of, you know, find on their own and then also, you know, socialize with their friends when the time is right. But I think the schooling model, you know, has been changing for the last two years because of COVID, but it's going to change so much more because of the AI sports that are that are possible now.
1: Kirk, I feel like you've got something to say.
9: I've been trying to do this as it evolves with teachers in our, in our districts. And we're having lots of discussions about the what exactly constitutes a product of student learning right? It, can we really measure that via a paper anymore? Or we sh- should we really be gathering the perceptions and the growth that occurs? And how do we gather that data to showcase student learning? And, and we're at a place where we're really thinking about metacognitive markers, right? Demonstrate, asking students to demonstrate what they're thinking and showing us how, how they're thinking and how their thinking has evolved through the use with or without AI. I mean,
1: think about it this way. Do you think that someone could fake becoming an Eagle Scout? probably not right because it's their you know it's an authentic determination of their of what they've done right and if they used chat GPT to write the plan for the Eagles scout thing that's fine that's powerful right so i think it does call for a whole new ways of thinking about you know thinking about assessment really getting to authentic assessment
8: one of the things that i'm looking at is both we've been talking a lot about the output side but there's also the input side right and as we as we develop curriculum. And as we develop learning models on paper, the way we've been doing it for decades, right? In fact, AI might be able to develop those better and with less bias than the ones we're now structuring because of our limited, I think it was you, Greg, who said, you know, there's 50,000 movies, we can only watch one at a time, right? And so now, obviously, is there a problem that that'll introduce unintended bias? A hundred percent, right? There's absolutely that risk. But I think we have to look at the inputs, too, and question whether our paper-based or Excel-based or Word document-based models are any better or any less risky than some of the AI models. And so I think that's just a question we need to ask ourselves and not be biased against the AI for that reason. What about you, Jim? Are you for or against the AI?
5: Uh, so, I'm a career <laughs> educator who's you know, ventured into ed tech and, and the, into the world of AI. So, I'm for it, but I think, you know, within with certain constraints, I think one of the things we've tried to do in creating the EdSafe AI Alliance is to bring the stakeholders together from different parts of the education and technology ecosystem so that we can have these kind of conversations. And as an educator, my hope is. Really influence the people who are kind of thinking about the technology, where it's going. I think you know, I worked at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation on the post secondary team for several years and reached out to Brad Smith, the president at Microsoft, when I read an article or read a, a piece that he had put out where he was talking about how great it was that they had a chance to play with what became Chat GPT 3 for about a year and a half within Microsoft before it was released to the world. And so I sent him back to somewhat snarky notes and said, Gee, Brad, since you're spending so much you know, Microsoft is investing so much in education, would have been nice for teachers to have a year and a half of lead time for this. You know, and could you think about this for GPT four or GPT five, whatever is coming? I think that, you know, our best defense is a good offense and trying to get, you know, educators to help drive and inform the conversation because the technologists went to school, but they haven't really been responsible for educating others. Right. So I think that we have a, a reciprocal kind of opportunity here. And just super thrilled, you know, to sit down on the conversation with you all today. Well, this will
1: not be the last time that we all talk about AI. (laughs) So I look forward to talking to you in any different format. Thank you, Ted, my brother, for for joining us. Thank you, everyone else. Good to see new friends and old and uh, look forward to working with you all. Bye.